chapter 6, verse 24, through to the end of chapter 7. Uh, if you've glanced at the second page of the bulletin, which would be helpful as we go through, you'll appreciate that we've got to cover at least 17 points this morning. So we're going to be moving at some speed. I can only kind of touch on each of these and I hope that we can each during the week and days beyond meditate on the various headings that have come to me. But let's read this chapter, uh, these verses. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, Help me, my lord the king. The king replied, If the lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? Then he asked her, what's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give me your son, give up your son so that we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so that we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. He said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him, and the king said, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow a seer of flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. <coughs> now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and, and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. 
This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp, and not a man was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I'll tell you what the Aramans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they've left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they'll surely come out, and then we'll take them alive and get into the city. One of his officers answered, Make some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all these Israelites who are doomed. So let us seek them to fight... Let us send them to find out what happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, Go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan, and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seer of flour sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Now the king had put the officer on whose army leaned in charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died, just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, About this time tomorrow a seer of flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, You'll see it with your own eyes, but you'll not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. So we return this morning uh, to our series on the life of Elisha. Uh, perhaps there are two more studies to go, we shall see, uh, and then we'll be in the run-up to Christmas. Now you may remember that Elisha's name mean, means God saves, or God is salvation. And in every incident in the life of Elisha, including today's, we see God saving his people freely by grace. And this is a remarkable story of God's grace, God's free salvation of his people. Now, what happened here probably took place in about the year 850 BC, so over 2,800 years ago. And if you've been here, you've perhaps seen that the Aramaeans or the Syrians who live to the north of Israel are a constant thorn in Israel's side. Last time in chapter 6, we were dealing with uh, the early part of chapter 6, raiding parties coming and invading and causing trouble in the north of Israel. One eventually came into the centre of Israel to capture Elisha. And remember, the city was surrounded by this raiding party, but Elisha could see beyond to chariots of fire and horses of fire filling the hills all around him. And the Lord saved Elisha. 
And if you've got your Bible, verse 23 of chapter 6, there seems to be peace. The bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. But this was an uneasy peace. And not long later, verse 24, a full-blown invasion occurs with Aram invading Israel. Let's always be on our guard against the devil and his demonic forces. You may have enjoyed a time of peace. It may have been great being a Christian. But beware, you could face very soon a full-on attack. And that's why Paul says, every day, every moment, make sure you're clothed with the full armour of God so that you can stand strong against the devil's schemes. Now, actually, in this incident, this attack upon Israel was part of God's judgment on his people. His people, sadly, as you read through the Old Testament, were constantly turning away and worshipping idols. And God warned them of what would happen if they did this. And there are passages in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that warn of sieges and of cannibalism. And tragically, these things happen in this passage. You see, God God is holy. He is always true to his word. And he particularly hates idolatry. Now, you may say to me, and I may say to you, well, this is from the Old Testament, because we're New Testament, New Covenant believers. We're not under the law, we're under grace. And that's true. But John... The Apostle of Love, who we read earlier as we prepared for communion, in that letter that I read from, he says, right at the end, the very last verse, he writes, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And I have to ask, do I put pleasure, possessions, my position in the place of where God should be? at the centre of my life? Or is it my family, my firm? Even my football. Does that replace God in my life? Now we may not suffer in the actual way that these Israelites did, but there can be closely related spiritual implications as we'll see. And yet as this story demonstrates... God, in his free and undeserved grace to us, can deliver me from the devil's attacks. And even he can forgive me of all my sin. And he can bless me in amazing ways as we listen to his promises and obey the words of the gospel. Now, I've called this uh, sermon Gospel Prices. And you'll notice the dramatic change that takes place in the cost of goods between the two chapters. When the siege is over, prices plummet compared to what they were before. And that's all a wonderful picture of the Christian good news. In the place place of the terrible price and cost of sin, and then leading to a price that I could never pay to God because it was so vast, a price I could never afford. Jesus instead pays that price so that the riches of God 
like all this landscape strewn with good food and clothes and horses and everything else that they needed all God's riches are freely available to me I don't have to pay they're there because Jesus has paid that awful cost in full but let's unpack this in a little more detail and this story I believe has something to say to all of us whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian whether you're a mature Christian or a weak Christian or a young Christian shall I say there's something here for all of us and I want to look at it under two headings first of all the realities of spiritual poverty now there are a number of aspects here it's kind of an anatomy study and there are 12 points I can spot at least that describe spiritual poverty the first one is surrounded now I guess none of us has lived through a siege and I trust we never will but you can imagine can you not how frightening it would be to be surrounded unable to escape I'm sure I would struggle to sleep worrying were the defences the city walls strong enough or were the, was the enemy going to break in during the night death and destruction are now real possibilities and there's no way out I can't escape I'm surrounded and spiritual poverty whether you're a Christian or not involves as it were your life being squeezed slowly from you yet on the surface things are okay you're doing well you've got a good job money's okay but there are times in your heart you really don't know where to turn you feel surrounded as it were by enemy forces and there's no one to help you we can as Christians as non-Christians easily feel trapped and hemmed in how often have you said or heard others say to you well if it's not one thing it's another there's no way out I want to break free that was the famous Queen song I want to break free I want to escape to the country which I regularly see as I try and run on the treadmill in the gym I want to escape to the country I want to go back to the good old days how it used to be but I can't now of course in some sieges people do try to break free but they're often caught by the surrounding army Paul you see especially warns us if we're Christians do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world or as the J.B. Phillips translation so wonderfully captures that when he says don't let the world squeeze you into its mould I can easily become surrounded I can easily become squeezed by the world and its values I can be surrounded that's spiritual poverty secondly shortages well obviously it's inevitable in a position of siege there's a shortage of food and supplies and this can quickly lead to famine conditions we read there was a great famine in the city in September 1941 the German army surrounded 
what was Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, a city of 2.8 million civilians plus troops. And the siege went on until it was finally broken in January 1944, over two years later. And it's estimated that in Leningrad at least 641,000 people died. Starvation, disease. But you see, in times of spiritual poverty, spiritual supplies can dry up. Some years after this story took place, the prophet Amos writes, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. I, it saddens me, but we live in such days of famine, of shortage. Children growing up in our country who have no idea whatsoever of the Bible or Bible stories, people who demand that we remove Christ from Christmas, but it can affect us all. Are you on a spiritual starvation diet? Are there barriers in your life preventing God's life and provision flowing into your life? Thirdly, there's sickening appetites. The terrible shortages in Samaria lead to a sickening diet, eating donkeys' heads and paying through the nose for it. And donkeys, you see, are classified in the scriptures unclean animals. The Jews were told they're unclean, don't eat donkeys. And in verse 25, the NIV quite politely translates seed pods. But in reality, that's dove's dung. It's like me having to eat every two weeks, as I put it off, our cat litter tray when I change it. Disgusting. But you know, isn't it true that in times of spiritual poverty, and indeed in times of spiritual poverty in our own lives, we can turn to sickening things for satisfaction? We may say this, see this all around us. People turn into sickening things to satisfy their souls. But are there secret things which actually are sickening that we're consuming for our spiritual satisfaction? Fourthly, there are skewed values. During the siege, a donkey's head costs 80 shekels of silver. That's equivalent to over 300 pounds. Now, that's a pretty expensive roast dinner on a Sunday when you've got to pay over 300 quid for a donkey's head which doesn't contain much meat. The amount of dove's dung, a fourth of a cab, would be equivalent of setting you back 20 pounds. And tragically, in times of spiritual poverty, all your values get horribly distorted. The things we should value, integrity, honesty, faithfulness, Purity, loyalty, well, they're considered cheap. And they're easily dispensed with. Whereas the, re the reverse of such behaviours in our sinful, selfish culture are valued highly. 
I won't go into it, I'm not interested in it at all, but uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, or um, the thing that's going on in Australia, is all sensually wrapped up in sexual values, which should never be portrayed in a pure and loving way. And sadly, in our own hearts, we value highly certain things that we shouldn't and we devalue other things that we should highly value. How, how has this happened? Well, someone once described the devil's main work as like someone breaking into a department store at night and switching all the price labels on all the goods so that the expensive goods are cheap and the cheap goods have now got high prices on them. Are there skewed values in my life? Fifthly, there's shortcoming. You see, in the middle of the siege, a woman sees the king and she cries out to him, help me, my lord the king. But the king is useless, he's helpless, he's a total shortcoming. You see, in previous years, Israel could have called out to godly kings, to David, to Solomon, for wisdom, for direction, but not now. Instead, there's weak leadership. The powerful, powerless. Now, you, you may think I'm being a little unfair on this king, but actually the more we look at him as we go through this passage, you'll see his true, char- his true character being revealed. But you see, in times of spiritual poverty, there are times of great shortcoming, of weakness in areas when we need strength. We may cry out, where is the strong lead from the church in our nation? In these desperate times, why do men of God not speak out the truth? But are there shortcomings in my life, in my witness at work? Do I allow things to happen that really I should stand up against? Are there weaknesses in my home, in my marriage? Sixthly, there's savagery. The siege, you see, gets so bad that they're forced into cannibalism. Mothers somehow overcoming maternal instincts to eat, to kill, to cook, and to eat their own children. And you see, a horrible feature of a spiritually poor society is the outbreak of savagery among its citizens. Jill and I caught a glimpse of this when we recently watched part of a documentary series on Broadmoor. Now, aside from this, uh, well, we may think, well, that's just a few really nasty people in Broadmoor. And we live in a civilised society. Well, do we? We kill tens of thousands of children every year through abortion. And there's the drip, drip, drip move towards euthanasia. But what about savagery in my own heart? Does it exist? Well, yes, it does. Jesus talks about hatred being equivalent to murder. And you see, this cannibalism here, we can describe it as all about consuming someone else for your personal gain. Am I a cannibal in the way I use others for my own personal gain? 
Do I destroy others by criticism, by bitterness, by gossip, by lies? That's cannibalism. You see, the Bible is very accurate. It describes my heart as desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things and it's beyond cure. I need a new heart. I don't need a moral rearmament or a change of approach. I need a new heart, a clean heart from God. Seventhly, there's slander. The one woman here accuses the other. And in times of spiritual poverty, in our nation, in our church, in our lives, slander will abound. Truth will be devalued. Lawsuits will multiply. We've got probably more lawyers now than we've got accountants. It's terrible. (laughs) I used to work in the city. My word is my bond. Do I trust a trader in the London money market? No, I don't. Their word is not their bond, sadly. I hope it gets back to that point. But why is this? Well, because the devil is ultimately the father of lies. The name devil actually means, the Greek word diabolus, slanderer. And sadly, in times of spiritual poverty, slander can divide a church, it can split a marriage, it can wreck a family, it can destroy companies. Eighthly, then, superstition. The people notice as they look up to the king who happens to be walking along the city wall, probably looking out to see what's going on, that beneath his royal robes he's wearing sackcloth. Now that was usually a sign of penitence and of mourning. But it seems to me this king has hidden this away. And this man, I believe, actually is a hypocrite. He's angry with God... And he wants to kill Elisha, the man of God. He's not really repentant, but he's wearing sackcloth just in case. Underneath, almost as a lucky charm. And in times of spiritual poverty, ironically, people tend to get very superstitious. Oh yes, all my children have been christened, you know. I've done the right thing for them, just to make sure. And if we go on an airplane, I always wear my St. Christopher's. And, uh, oh yes, we must get to Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve midnight mass. And there can be, even in our Christian lives, superstitious rituals that we go through to make sure God blesses us. Little rituals that you have that you think will... Do you good with God? Oh yes, send up a prayer, that'll be okay. Superstition. Ninthly, severing from God's word. What does the king want to do? Well, in verse 31, he makes an oath that he will decapitate Elisha. He blames Elisha and he's determined to get rid of him. But how tragic that is. God's word, God's direction, God's counsel, God's warnings come through Elisha. He's the prophet. He's the the channel for God's word to the people. And so in essence, this king wants to kill off the influence of God and the word of God from his life and from the life of his people. And that, sadly, is a real hallmark of spiritual poverty. Deliberately, or perhaps unconsciously, cutting yourself off from God, from his word, from the prophetic word of God, from the Bible, and its vital input into our lives. We want to cut 
cut it off, to decapitate it, not to listen to it. Tenthly, stress. The whole situation here is one of great stress. Anxiety. The people are in total despair, and the king, in verse 33, he's totally confused. This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So if it's from the Lord, why doesn't he go back to the Lord and ask for help and seek forgiveness? But instead, why should I wait for the Lord anymore? I'll sort this out. Well, how can you sort it out if it's from the Lord? Confusion. Chaos. Worry. Despair. Stress. These are the hallmarks of a UK society that is spiritually poor. And they can be the hallmarks of a Christian who is spiritually poor, stressed out of their minds. Don't know what to do. Panicking. Eleventh, scorn. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Elisha declares the Lord, uh, declares the word of the Lord, but the king's right-hand man can only mock and pour scorn. But of course, what he's doing as he mocks God's word, he mocks God. People don't realise this. When they mock the Bible, they're mocking God. And this is spiritual poverty, to pour scorn on God's word, to be unbelieving when God calls us to be men and women of faith. And you see, what's happening here is this man is applying natural reasoning. He's clever. He's worked out how many people live in this city and how much food is needed to feed them, it's impossible from a human perspective because he's left God totally out of the question. And your scorn, your mocking, comes from unbelief. And it will leave you spiritually poor because you're limiting, if not eliminating, God and the power of God in your life. Someone says, don't talk yourself or your church out of a blessing. If in doubt, keep your mouth shut. And finally, separation. A final reality of spiritual poverty can be seen in the lives of these four men with leprosy. In verse 3 of chapter 7. Because of their condition, they're excluded. They're outside. Outcasts. Ostracized. And they are a picture of what sin does in my life and in your life. It separates me from the people of God. It separates me from the life of God. It divides us from each other. And it leaves us like these four men in a hopeless position. Which way can they turn? Well, they can't go back in the city. What can they do? And it's incurable by ourselves. So that's a quick run to, through of 12 aspects of spiritual poverty. But let's turn our attention to the riches of God's provision. You see, we can so easily focus and get depressed and pray, oh Lord, what are we going to do at all the spiritual poverty that is around us and even within our own lives and in our own families that we focus so much on that that we miss and we fail to experience the riches of God's grace. David says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So what aspects of spiritual provision can we see? Well, very quickly, the provision itself. The first thing we notice is that God had caused the Aramean people, the army, to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. Now, where had all this lot come from? Well, I can only guess they'd already turned up a bit before as the chariots and horses of fire. This is the angelic army of God coming to protect and preserve God's people. We thought about this two weeks ago. Keep calm and look out. Look out for the greatness of God, the armies of heaven. I love the, the title for God, the Lord Almighty, which means the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And we're to look by faith to see the armies of heaven. And as a result of the panic that they cause, the Arameans leave behind a treasure trove of supplies. There's so much food that prices plummet back to reasonable levels. In fact, we could say they go back to normal levels. And you see, that's the purpose of God's spiritual provision, to restore things back to the way they should be. You remember in Acts, the apostles and the early church is described as these men have turned the world upside down. They've turned things upside down. And in fact, they turned things the right way up. Christians should be those who turn things back to restore them to their true values, to the right way up. And God wants to restore you and I back to the values of the Bible, to the values of God. And he wants to provide everything we need for our spiritual health and well-being. But you notice in regard to this provision, there's plenty. This is a matter of hours, at most 24 hours. There's now an amazing supply, an abundant supply, and an available supply. The situation is totally transformed. There's more than enough for everyone. And it's been supplied entirely by God. What did the people have to do? Nothing other than to exercise faith in the word of God and to leave their so-called place of refuge, their safety within the city, and they had to go out of that so-called refuge and freely receive everything that God had supplied. Can you see what a wonderful picture that is of the Christian gospel and of God's provision for you and I when you suffer from spiritual poverty, leave behind your so-called safe position. The walls of security that you've erected around you, the walls of pride, the walls of fear, and instead come out by faith to receive the riches of God's salvation and his provision. You see, the, the officer here cynically refers to God opening the floodgates of heaven, and the guy is then crushed in the flood. God's storehouses are full and overflowing. He can cleanse me completely. He can remove all my sin as far as the east is to the west. He can meet all my need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so thirdly, there's proclamation. The consequence of knowing God's plenteous provision is that you and I have got to proclaim it to others. Verse 9, this is a day of good news. And you're keeping it to yourself. You can't do that. Go at once and report this. 
Someone has defined evangelism as one satisfied beggar telling other hungry beggars where to find bread. And that's what the four lepers decide to do. And that's what you and I must do. The blessings that we've received lay upon us a great spiritual responsibility. Don't hesitate. Don't be fearful about telling others. It's their responsibility how they react. It's not your responsibility other than to tell them the good news. We must report what we have found to be true. Two final points. Promise. Think about Elisha for one moment. What does he do? He simply passes on the word of God and he trusts God for the results. It's an amazing word that he has to give in a city that is in total uh, despair. Tomorrow everything's going to be normal. What? What did he try and what did he do? Well, he didn't change God's word in any way. He didn't put a spin on it. He didn't say perhaps this might happen. He faithfully passed on believing that somehow God would do what he's promised. And God has promised to pour out the riches of his mercy and grace on all those who repent and believe. So I can tell people, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will go to heaven. If you repent, God will forgive your sin. And like these four helpless lepers, we must recognise our hopeless position and go and take hold of all God's spiritual provision. And finally, though, there's a penalty. Beware of the great danger of unbelief, of mocking God. You see this sceptical officer, he's trampled to death by the people rushing to find food and supplies. God is holy and just, and if I reject his gracious provision, then he is holy. And I'll miss out. And there's a penalty to pay. But as we close, I want you just to briefly look at this man, this officer. And it links to what Sue, uh, the song that Sue introduced to us. Do you see that this guy is the man on whom the king leans? If you look, he's the man on the king's arm. There is another, the capital A, on whom the King of Kings leans, and his name is Jesus. And in a way, he willingly laid down his life and was crushed and trampled like a rose trampled in the soil to enable me to leave the starvation of my sin and walk, as it were, over Christ to come out into the riches of his grace. It's an amazing comparison that you can just see if you think carefully about it. This man on whom the king leaned is a picture of Christ who willingly laid down his life that I can go from poverty to plenty. That is amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord, we've rushed through a great passage of your word. Please teach each of, us, each of us. May your Holy Spirit apply your word into our hearts that each of us may shun spiritual poverty and rush to find spiritual provision and riches through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.